0: I was really convinced that, yes, this was happening. And this was back in the late 90s when the term tree tugger was still an insult. But I really got into it and I wanted to understand why the earth was changing. And I got together with a couple of friends who were in Mensa. And we began analyzing it all. And we were able to determine that... It was really not completely man-made as folks are pushing right now. We're largely to blame for a lot a lot of it, but the principal driver is solar. And that was when we stepped into the next thing was, well, is this a normal solar activity? And we started looking for information, but, you know, really, solar observations, the history of that is only about 300-some-odd years old, and it's difficult to work with. But even then, there was no evidence of this anomalous pattern, and we're not talking about counting sunspots. We're talking about just a very slight increase in luminance, brightness, and that's the reason why uh, one of the one of the many different reasons why they're doing the geoengineering spraying or what we call chemtrail spraying is so they're putting aluminum up in the atmosphere to uh, deal with that. But we're looking at it and going, all right, we don't see any argument for this increase in luminance being a normal solar cycle type of event so that means the Sun must be interacting with something that is perturbing it something that's causing this to happen and that took us to the next stage of our analysis which we we're going all right if this truly is what's happening that the Sun is interacting with something then it would stand a case you know stand to reason that if we look at the other objects in our system, the other planets with atmospheres, we should see similar things going on there to what's happening on Earth. And that was exactly what we found. Uh, matter of fact, to a very stunning degree, you know, everyone's familiar that you have the big eye on Jupiter that's going away. But there was about a of, uh, about 10 years ago, about of, Surface warming on Mars that if it happened here on the earth wouldn't Have become an extinction level event for humanity. No question about it. It was that extreme so we saw This pattern going throughout there were just all kinds of things happening and Then you take the next step you're saying okay, all anything with an atmosphere in our solar system is being having surface perturbations, atmospheric perturbations as a result of what's happening with the sun. so and the sun is obviously being perturbed itself, interacting with something else. Now, is that something else going to be one of two things? It is either going to be a captive or a rogue. If it's a captive, it's something that's been captured in the gravity well of the sun and is in orbit around it. On the other hand, if it is a rogue, it is something that's just flown into our system and it's going so doggone fast that... The gravity well cannot capture it, and it's just going to head out the other side. And we see this happen with comets, like Comet Lee back in 1999. Well, what we determined was that this was something that was caused by a captive. And then that, for us, really led us this path of working it out and finding the solutions to the the questions that we had, brought us to the doorstep of Planet X. And we published on it when we first started back in January of 2002. It was the very first article I produced. And this was, interestingly enough, it was something that was a result of something that happened to me with PAX television. And I was, had been interviewed with them for an asteroid program, which was very well done and uh, i was on that program with dr brian marsden of the smithsonian astrophysics lab and so they came back to me and said well we'd like you to talk about the deccan traps eruptions as opposed to the Chichalu impact theory of doing clean which explains the extinction of the dinosaurs and this is very briefly, the decontraps, uh, these are in India. Massive, massive, huge walking lava flows, miles thick, miles thick. That just put a horrendous amount of stuff up into the atmosphere. Well, what we determined, and you know, I looked at it, and really was thinking about it, is it was more likely you had a like a one two event that. There was the Chichalube impact, and the force of that impact went through the core of the Earth, and then that energy slammed into India on the other side of the world, and there you go. That triggered those eruptions, and so uh, literally the planet was caught between a rock and a hard place. And so that really... For me, it was a very strong explanation of it. Well, they came out. Pax interviewed me, and I did the interview. Did a lot of work on it. I got a lot of help on that from uh, Doctor Marsden. He passed away, fortunately, a few years back in 2010. And we had a lot of fun, you know, working it through and thinking about it. Well. After the interview, they took and soundbited me and twisted everything that I said. Next thing I know, according to the way they soundbited me on this show, I was saying, yeah, you know, uh, man and dinosaurs walk together. I was validating uh, a biblical view. Well, oh, man. (laughs) That was just awful, and it was, I had such a nice, nice friendship with, uh, you know, Marsden, and he just wouldn't answer my phone (laughs) Uh,
1: Marshall, what were you saying? What were you saying where they were able to twist your words around? What, What were you really saying? I was explaining
0: what they'd asked me to explain, the Deacon Traps eruptions. And what they did was they soundbited me. And literally, I'm going, yeah, men and, and dinosaurs walk together. Well, I was talking about this was the extinction of the dinosaurs. So, you know, what, the way they did it was they'd have me talking in general about it. And then they would show graphics over that. And then they literally took snippets of my voice and stitched them together to get what they wanted.
1: Yeah, that's too bad, because nowadays, somebody does that to you, you can jump on social media and say, so-and-so is is lying, etc., etc., but back then, you didn't really have those opportunities.
0: Well, you know, I posted the article on my website, and that was the first article, January of 2002, Did Planet X Kill the Dinosaurs? And that's what got me into it, was being soundbited by Christian fundamentalists. In a very mean and unspiriting <laughs> way. And, you know, nobody, nobody comes to this topic, uh, through some sort of formal process. You're, you're not going to go to a college and sign up for a course in Planet X. I can guarantee you that. So I, for me, it was like most folks, you walk straight backwards into it. The next thing you know, there you are. And that's what happened to me. And then after that happened, uh, the next thing was we started writing a few exploratory articles. I was really more interested in Earth changes and space threats, asteroids and global warming. But we started writing about it. And, wow, all of a sudden we found ourselves smack up in the middle of this Huge controversy uh, that two people at the time back in 2003 were, well, this was in 2002 we were writing about it, but it was Nancy Leader at Zeta Talk was talking about there would be a catastrophic flyby in 2003, July specifically. And then there was this guy who pirated her work, stole it from her and ignored her cease and desist man and his uh, name was Hazelwood and he wrote a book Blindsided which just sold, flew off the shelves and he didn't do a stitch of original work he just plagiarized everything Nancy had done and so it was Nancy and her mini-me Mike, Mark Hazelwood or Hazelnut as we came to call him <laughs> and uh <laughs> We're looking at this, and it's like, there's nothing, we're we're not seeing any empirical data that suggests that anything of this nature is going to happen. There's just nothing that corroborates it. And so we were publishing on that, had articles like Zeta Fact versus Zeta Hysteria, and uh, we wound up becoming an alternate source to Nancy and that was a very sad time for us because we got so many emails from people who were just in a terrible state of panic. They'd write these emails and you could see they were trying to be very somber and calculating and so forth. Uh, but the fear just oozed out like, you know, a brick layer when he puts a brick down and he. the the mortar oozes out and he scrapes it off with the trowel. And that's what we felt like we were doing, scraping all this ooze off with the trowel when we were answering these folks. And it was just awful because they're talking about, you know, do I sell everything? Do I run to the hills? Do I do this? You know, it was like, oh, golly. It was such a sad time. And then it, Uh, And I can remember back then uh, the activity on our server, Yowza.com, was just explosive. I mean, huge amounts of traffic. And came finally into July of 2003. And what we said wasn't going to happen, didn't happen. And we'd called it correctly. Well, it really bottomed out interest in the whole topic of Planet X. Uh, I can remember in August of that summer, about mid-August, I published an article that was titled, uh, Is It Time to Revisit Planet X? And aside from ourselves, I think four other people read it. (laughs) And, you know, this is going from thousands, tens of thousands of views a day to four people read it. But, the, uh, and the topic really went fallow for a few years there. Um, and that was a good thing because it really took the pressure off us. And we could focus on doing our, our scientific research. And then um, we had the Sumatra superquake and tsunami in December of 2004. And on the heels of that, Katrina Between those two events, it really got people going, whoa, what's happening with our world? And then interest in the topic rebounded. And rebounded very strongly because also this is about the time that the cable TV networks were really thumping on the uh, mind calendar theme of 2012. And they led, you know, one of the things that, People don't want to revisit it. They just go, gosh, that was such an embarrassment and all that. But the fact is, uh, we were sold a bill of dids by the cable TV companies. And um, you have in prophecy two aspects. You have a harbinger event, which is not a violent event, but one where it's clearly demonstrable that you know you are on a catastrophic timeline towards the prophesized event. And for the ancients, celestial observations were really crucial to how they relate information, particularly across a span of centuries, if not millennia, to future generations, which was the case here with the Mayans. And they were looking for a very specific celestial alignment, And that occurred, which is the beginning of our transit through the plane of our galaxy. And that's not something that just happens like zippity-doo-dah, 10 seconds, you're on one side, on the other. It takes a long time to get through that. And we're still in that process, but we entered into it. And that's what the Mayans, ancient Mayans, were looking for. And they were telling their future generations, when you see this happening... Then you know that uh, you're going to have uh, you're on the threshold of some very difficult trials and tribulations that are going to start coming your way. And we actually found the empirical data that proved it. Then you know I've had people that have said, "Well, Marshall Masters predicted Planet X on 2012." Anybody that tells you that is a bold-faced, stinking, filthy liar. I never did that. And the only time I did make a prediction about December 21, 2012, was in the August of 2012, when I was interviewed by uh, the National Geographic. And they weren't happy with my answers because the producer said, well, Marshall, they a direct correlation between Planet X and the Mayan calendar. And I said, not that we see it's coincidental, but it's there's nothing that corroborates it. And he said, oh, okay, what are you going to do on December twenty one, twenty twelve? 2012? And I said, I'm going to get up and make coffee and not take my coffee seriously. Well, my prophecy came to pass. That's exactly what I did that day. I got up and ground coffee, and uh, I enjoyed my morning cup. And uh, however, interestingly enough, At the time I said that in August, I was right, but for the wrong reasons. Or, excuse me, wrong, but for the right reasons. Because we were looking for empirical data. We were looking for something that says, you know, here is observable, hard evidence that anybody can independently vet on their own. That's what we were looking for, and we didn't see any of that. Well, we didn't see it at the time because the only empirical data, the only numbers that you could see prior to December 21, 2012, was the market share and advertising revenue of History Channel and Discovery and so forth. And they were just raking it in. And then after December 21, 2012, all of that just died out. Boom, immediately. Well... Twenty fifteen we actually said, you know, we're talking to another researcher and we were got onto this topic, and again, you know, you walk straight backwards into it. And we decided to revisit December twenty twelve and to see, well, what was the data trends? for example, for 2011 through 2012, and then beyond that in 2013 and on. And that's when we found something that just flabbergasted us. And we were using two data sets. Uh, one was meteors, particularly fireballs. And the second thing we were looking for was earthquakes of all magnitude. And the reason why we select earthquakes of all magnitude is that Our government, there's a lot of earthquakes. It will not report. And those that it does report, it, you know, try and remember a time when you didn't see a headline that said USGS downgraded it. So 5.1 becomes a 4.8. Or, you know, a a 4.1 becomes a 3.9. They're always jiggering the books and getting it down. So, they can tell people, well, there's no real increase in major earthquakes. Well, it's because they've cooked the books. But when you say, all right, let's just put it down to earthquakes of all magnitudes, then the picture really changes. And what we saw was right after December 21, 2012, the numbers just skyrocketed. Hmm. And it's still that way. The other thing we were looking at was fireballs, and we saw the same thing with fireballs, that they, too, are skyrocketing. And we're still seeing, in, you know, high anomalous reporting numbers, and we use uh, a group called, it was founded in 1911 called AMS American Meteor Association, and uh, or American Meteor Society, excuse me. You can find them at ams.org. Wonderful people. They do excellent work. And please, I ask your, your listeners out there to get involved with them and help support their effort. And so we've been downloading their data and analyzing it. And without a question, since December 21, 2012, These two harbinger trends are just really, really taking off. And I just published uh, my newest article, Science 15, The Nemesis Cloud, because we've been studying this uh, increase in fireballs. And at some point, you're going, All right, well, what's the meaning of all of this? And. What we believe we are seeing is that Nemesis has a cloud, and this is, uh, for those that are familiar with our own solar system, uh, we have at the outermost edge a ball that completely envelops us called the Oort cloud, and... Then within the Oort cloud is a Kuiper belt, which is a denser belt. And then, of course, everyone knows about the main asteroid belt in the core of our system.
1: Isn't the Oort cloud where a lot of uh, comets come from or something like that? Well, the uh, comets, yes,
0: and um, principally they believe it's out of the Kuiper belt. And there's astronomers have different theories they're going, well, this stuff was created by the gas giants kicking stuff out into the outer regions or it's left over from when our system formed and our sun was born there's a lot of theories and ideas, but still this is a region of space that's we we out there, and uh, there's really not that much known about it but we're looking at Nemesis now. Nemesis is a brown dwarf star, and uh, it's there are people that have said, "Well, you, you know, if you had, if you're in a binary system, then the stars are going to orbit each other. It's impossible for one star to orbit another. The two have to orbit each other," which is a specious assumption because brown dwarfs, which are relatively new to astronomy, although they're very common out there in space, are very, very dark. And they're small. Uh, a brown dwarf is going to be about twice the size of Jupiter, somewhere thereabouts, mas menos. And uh, in terms of mass, it's, uh, you know, 0.08% of our sun. So... It definitely, you know, something, our sun is not going to share an orbit with something that's 0.08% of its mass. And that's where this specious assumption comes in. And what we're saying is that this increase in fireballs that we're seeing in this article, just go to my site, marshallmasters.com. And that'll take you straight to it. Yowza.com is the site, your own world USA, Y O W USA.com. And you can read the article. I get into detailing it out in very specific terms. It's quite lengthy, and there's a lot of illustrations. And what we're saying is that Nemesis has a cloud around it. This cloud's going to be full of icy objects. And this is something that really actually goes to, um, you know, when people talk about the story of Noah and the flood. And Genesis tells us that we do have subterranean seas, which science now is acknowledging, yes, we do have subterranean seas, and they're very, very substantial, very, very substantial. Do you mean uh, like oceans that are under the ground? Yes, oceans that are underneath the uh, the lithosphere. And, yeah, you know, I, I recall seeing some kind of... of... The lithosphere, it's the shell, mm-hmm. outer shell of our planet. And so there are vast oceans
1: underneath those. Yeah, I recall just recently seeing a news article about drilling or digging or something like that, and they actually hit water once they reached a certain depth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they know, scientists know that now, but when you ask scientists about Noah's flood, they go, well, that it would, you know, you'd have a global deluge that would last 40 days and 40 nights is impossible because there's simply not enough surface water on the planet to sustain that. And so, you know, they go, ha, 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 we got rid of that, blow it away. Well, the Nemesis cloud brings us back to this, all right, because the Nemesis cloud is going to be filled with a lot of small icy objects. In other words, a lot of water. And because this is something that is – this system – goes from the core of our planet out to the Kuiper Belt and back. So it's out in the Kuiper Belt, and it could just pick up all of this stuff, just like a vacuum cleaner. And, you know, they were, when you look at uh, Genesis 7, all right, Genesis uh, 7, 11 and 12, and I'll read the uh, from the King James for folks. I have both the Torah and the King James Version. But in the sixth hundredth year of Noah's life in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and then on eleven on twelve, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Now the thing is that you have the fountains of the great deep and the windows of heaven. Now obviously we had all this water gushing up. Subterranean from the subterranean seas. But what accounts for the rains, what I believe, because in the Colburn Bible, we are told that the Noah's flood, the sinking of Atlantis, and Exodus were all flyby events. Previous flybys of the Planet X system through the core of our system. And those flybys are going to have best case and worst case scenarios. Now, Noah's flood was a worst case scenario because when it was crossing, when Nemesis was crossing the ecliptic, the plane of the system, Earth was on the same side of the sun. However, during Exodus, Earth was on the opposite side of the sun when Nemesis was crossing the ecliptic. And that was a best-case scenario. And what we're looking at is going to be another worst-case scenario. We're going to be on the same side of the sun, which means we're going to have a pole shift. And that's really what, when you're talking about Noah's flood, the great deluge, and there are probably 150 to 200 different, accounts in the folklore and history and oral traditions of various peoples all around the world, so it's just not in the Bible, and frankly in the Bible is uh, drew upon Sumerian uh, you know, the Sumerian records and other folklore such as uh, Gilgamesh and it was a compendium of these things, there was a lot of sharing of ideas well Again, we're asking, where does the 40 days and 40 nights of rain come from? What would explain that? Now, I'm not, you know, to me, I'm not interested in validating the Bible. or And I think the most disgusting thing to do is to say science proves the Bible. To me, science is science, Bible is Bible. You keep the two separate. But the interesting thing about... Nemesis Cloud, if it exists, is that it would explain the 40 days and 40 nights because Earth would be flying through this ball of small icy objects which would be depositing vast amounts of water, frozen ice, into our atmosphere. Plus you have the release of water, subterranean water, All of this is uh, going to eventually condense into water droplets, which will then come down as rain. So what that tells us is we're looking at a flyby event that is going to be very, very difficult for us, I think a good way to think about what's coming and I use the term tribulation not in a religious way I just use it just the way you find it in the dictionary it's it's a time of a severe testing a trial and I think what we're facing really if you took the story of Exodus and Noah's flood and you bolted them together that gives you a pretty good idea of exactly what we're facing and that is not that far from us in the future.
1: So this would explain well, why, uh, I, I read a book a while ago, a few years back, it was called Arctos, I don't even remember who wrote it, but one of the main, the whole main point of the book is to talk about this pole shift that supposedly happened a long time ago, and what it said was, in a lot of the ancient records and writings, all the constellations were actually flipped upside down. Absolutely. Now, in
0: my book, Surviving the Planet X Tribulation, a faith-based leadership guide, I give an actual blow-by-blow. That's a big book. It's about 440 pages and 140 graphics or so. It's in color. And I walk people through exactly what's going to happen, step-by-step-by-step-by-step-by-step, so they can see the celestial mechanics of what it is and how it's going to impact us. Because a lot of people... Do not have that information, and so they're going to survive one event and think, "Well, we're you know, <laughs> boy, did we you know <laughs> we we're we're pretty cool, you know." Now let's go out and break out the champagne, and they're not going to expect the next things. Matter of fact, in my article, Nemesis Cloud, I, I take a I cite Mother Shipton's prophecy, and. Uh, she was a seeress who was uh, burned at the stake back in the 1600s in England for her prophecies, but they're uncanny in terms of their realism. And the, the part that I quoted was, And when the dragon's tail is gone, man forgets and smiles and carries on to apply himself too late, too late, for mankind has earned deserved fate. His masked smile, his false grandeur, will serve the gods their anger stir, and they will send the dragon back to light the sky. His tail will crack upon the earth and rend the earth, and man shall flee, king, lord, and serf. Well, in my book, Surviving the Planet X Tribulation, I actually explain this. I don't cite Mother Shipton, but what she's talking about is what I talk about in the book. It's transiting the tail. And this is when we're going to have the when we have the pole shift we're going to be on the same side of the sun as Nemesis the brown dwarf sister star to our own star reaches the ecliptic, the plane of our solar system and that's when we're going to have the days of darkness because Nibiru its outermost major planet is going to pass between us and the sun and We're it's literally, it. it, it's just going to be pitch black. But this is also when the pole shift happens because it is going to, um, we're, the Planet X system is in a clockwise orbit. We're in a counterclockwise orbit. We're going around the sun and it's going down and behind us. All right. So you have, this massive brown dwarf which has several planets that are larger than earth and they're all passing about the same time like you know literally it's uh think of it like two convoys passing each other on the high seas and they're going to exert incredible tidal gravitational forces and they're going to obtain what i call lithosphere lock on the lithosphere of the planet. And they're going to pull us in an opposite direction to the way we spin. And they're also going to pull at our axis. So what will happen is that our sun is also, prior to this, we're going to have, really horrendous solar storms. And there's going to be a lot of death and dying up to that. But then the pull shift event is when it really is bad. That's when billions die, not millions. And the Earth's spin will slow because these huge objects are pulling in the opposite direction of the spin. And so... As our Earth's spin slows, our magnetosphere dims down. We become much more vulnerable. This is the reason why that anyone that is on the surface is not going to do very well at this time. You're going to be the proverbial poodle in a microwave. Nice. So folks are going to go into the Earth. They're going to go to ground. And, and again, in my book, Surviving the Planet X Tribulation, I give specific guidelines on that. And what will happen is our spin will slow until eventually stops. And then we start spinning in the opposite direction. And at this time, because the Planet X system is going down and, you know, it's going at an angle below us and behind us, so that lithosphere lock is going to cause, we're going to have a crustal shift, we're going to have a magnetic shift, and we could have an axial shift.
1: So the, so the I'm sorry, the, the magnetism, the way that the poles are placed, has to do with the direction of the spin, basically.
0: Well, that is, the, the magnetism of the poles is just, and the, the poles have reversed. And there's historical evidence for this. You know, some scientists go, it takes millions and billions of years. And they give these long periods of time for a magnetic shift. But there's, you know, geology that indicates uh, a magnetic shift can take place in less than a day. Oh, wow. And this can this can really, really come on very, very fast. So... Um, what we will have is we will have a magnetic shift, which has already begun. You know, our North Pole is moving around a lot.
1: Yeah, that's true. And, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, that's something that you hear in the flat Earth world quite a bit, is that the North Pole never seems to be in the same place. Uh, however, in this case, there's a far different reason.
0: Right. And so you have, and also there are shifts a few years ago, we had fly-by-wire jets that were falling out of the skies in the South Atlantic. And as a matter of fact, there, for a period of time, the Russian Air Force uh, stopped flying in that region of the world because when you have a magnetic shift Uh, where literally north becomes south and south becomes north, that's where it starts is in the South Atlantic. You have the small flips until finally the whole planet has a magnetic flip. Uh, The crustal shift is where the actual crust of the planet shifts. Now, there are some people that say, you know, it'll shift head over heels. If that happens, i got news for you, you know. The planet is back to single-cell animals. It is just going to be horrendous. And there's nothing historically that really suggests that. What is more likely, and, I, and here I'd have to say, I do agree with uh, Major Ed Dames, who says if there's a pole shift, it's going to be a matter of probably about 12 to 13 degrees. And I think that is a pretty accurate estimate and what does that mean well for example uh, if you're in northern california i lived in the santa cruz area for a long time and that's northern california grasses scrub trees succulents um, you're up there where uh, it's just not really conducive to growth uh, to lush growth but After something like this, it would look more like the Hilo side of the big island of Hawaii. It would be very lush and green. So, for example, if you're living up in some place like Montana, after the shift, uh, your climate is going to go to something more akin to Colorado or northern New Mexico. That kind of a shift. Then there's also an axial shift, where right now we're our the Earth's axis is 23.5 degrees, and pe- there are people that say if that's changed, the Inuit certainly have said because they see the sun rise and set differently than it has before, and if that changes, that inclination changes. Keep in mind, that's what gives us the four seasons, which really is why we have a very lush world, very verdant, very life-prone world. Well, if we tilt up from 23 degrees to something less than that, then there's not going to be as much differentiation between the seasons. And that really reminds me of, The Lost Book of Enki, which is the autobiography of Lord Enki of the Anunnaki, who, according to that text, which is the Sumerian text translated by Sitchin, he is the father of our species. We came from his loins. They've been doing a lot of genetic experimentation with hominid ancestors and infusing them with Anunnaki genes so that they could create slaves to mine gold. And... He was, they were starting to get it down to a science, and he's walking along a riverbank one day and sees a couple of good-looking earth girls and says, I'm going to get me some of that. Next thing you know, we are modern men, and so that's how, you know, that's how we come about according to the lost book of Enki, and I can just hear fundamentalists out there gnashing their teeth, and, but. Interesting thing is, the very first calendar ever developed for our planet was by Lord Enki of the Anunnaki, now, it's a lunar calendar. But it only had two seasons, winter and summer, which lends credence to the fact that perhaps at that time, Earth all right, was not as tilted on its axis as it is now. Maybe it was 18 degrees instead of 23 degrees. All right? And because now we have the four seasons. Well, what happens if it goes even further? You know, let's say it goes to a 30-degree tilt. Well, then we're going to have extreme differences in our four seasons. And you're going to have incredibly blistering hot summers and incredibly freezing winters Uh, it's going to be a very difficult time so we're really in a sweet zone here 23.5 degrees and we go one way or the other life on this planet's not going to be as green verdant, and lush anymore I can tell you that so uh, that's something that we have to you know that's that, that is equally something that could happen. So you're talking about a magnetic shift, you're talking about a crustal shift, you're talking about an axial shift, and it's just a whole furball of factors that could just come together and make life incredibly difficult for the people who survived this event. And, and people wonder, well, you know, who's going to live? Who's going to die? You know, the, I take that on in my, I, I just produced an audio book series and I did it in video book as well called Two Sons in the Sky, Who Lives, Who Dies? You can go listen to it. Just go to two twosonsinthesky.com. Takes you right there. And I really address who is going to live and who's going to die. And what I say in that series is, what the three main leading causes of death during the tribulation will be. And a lot of folks have different ideas about what's going to cause death, but I've been studying this continually since 2002. And what I can tell you is the three things that are going to cause most of the death during the tribulation are going number one cause will be denial. You know, people that go around saying it's all nonsense, nothing's going to happen, and I don't want to hear about it. There's quite a few of those. Quite a few. And, you know, they're also the ones, if they do start to talk about it, they go, oh, well, when it happens, I just want to be ground zero and die. I don't want to survive that. You know, I'm going, "Uh uh-uh, I'm sorry, it's human nature. When you see the tsunami wall of water coming at you, you know, you're just not going to stand there and say, Three years ago, I swore I was just going to die this way, and I'm going to stand here and do it. I'm a person of my word. No, that's not, they're not going. That's human nature. That's not human nature. Human nature is you're going to turn tail and you're going to be going for everything you can. screaming, feet don't fail me now, <laughs> right? And you're going to be scrambling for safety and doing whatever you can. That's survival instinct. It's going to kick in. So. You know, when I hear these people say, well, I'm just going to die, you know, it's like, you know, that's Hollywood-esque, but that's
1: not real life. Now, the second thing, oh, go ahead. No, actually, go, go ahead and uh, finish what you're saying. It'd probably be best if you finished your, uh, uh, what you're oh, getting at. Okay. Yeah, and ahead. then uh, the second major cause of death is
0: procrastination. People who are in awareness do that quite a bit. And, um you know, they get into this um, thing of, well, you know, my family's crucifying me for talking about it, and uh, I can't have a serious conversation with anybody, and so I'm just going to study it. And they study it, and they study it, and they study it, and I ask them, well, what are you doing? Are you doing anything? I'm studying it. You know, that's procrastination, second leading cause of death during the tribulation. And then the third leading cause of death during the tribulation will be location because 70% of the earth's surface is water and the vast majority of humanity lives within 150 miles of a shoreline. And uh, so, and interestingly enough, if you look at the incidence of denial and procrastination, these areas that are most prone to risk are the ones where there is the most stringent levels of procrastination and denial. So those are the three major causes. And now let's get back to what you were going to say. I'm interested to know.
1: Well, earlier you brought up the lost book of Enki. And what I want to ask you is, is, during these events that are coming up, can we be expecting the return of the Anunnaki? I talk about that in
0: my book, Being in It for the Species, The Universe Speaks, and I talk about that at length, and yes, we can expect the return of the Anunnaki, and it's not going to be a kumbaya moment. It's going to be more like the mafia coming to collect the vig.
1: So I I take it that you have... Uh, a pretty much a a negative view of the Anunnaki. Does this include Enki himself, who is said to have tried to help mankind?
0: Well, there's Enki and then there's Enlil. If Enlil comes, you know, we're in deep kimchi because Enlil is the one that uh, wanted to eradicate us with Noah's flood. And by not letting anyone know about it, and he's also the one that used, uh, he was the first one to use nuclear weapons on the planet and killed off a lot of our ancestors that way. Uh, he doesn't like us. We're abominations and he wants, he wants to get rid of the abominations. And so, you know, either way, it's still not gonna be, not gonna be a healthy situation for us because the Anunnaki uh, are going to need a lot of gold that uh, they're using for their atmosphere. Uh, they're using gold to repair it. Uh, we are using aluminum with what we're doing with chemtrailing, which is absolutely intense out there. And the aluminum that they're spraying on us, this is not something they say, well, aluminum happens naturally in, you know, in nature. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't happen. It's not refined. It's not being sprayed on us. And all this aluminum that they're dumping on us, uh, you know, this is the reason why we're having this high incidence of Alzheimer's and autism, these other brain issues. Heavy metal poisoning, pure, plain, and simple.
1: So we're actually trying to copy the way that the Anunnaki are trying to repair their atmosphere.
0: Well, we have the same problem that they do. This is affecting our atmospheres just as their transit through the core of their system is affecting their uh, atmosphere. And in order for them to repair their atmosphere, they use gold. And uh, the thing about The gold is that they don't use it for a monetary system. They don't have one per se. But it is something that's very, very effective for repairing your atmosphere. You know, think about when you see a spaceship and they have the gold foil. This is incredibly thin. But gold is a very good radiation shield. It's a superb radiation shield. As a matter of fact, there are those, and I'm among them, that you know the Ark of the Covenant, I believe, was designed to transport some type of nuclear device, nuclear-powered device, and that was the reason why it was lined with gold on the inside. It's one thing to say, let's line the outside with gold. That's good for show. But why line the inside with gold? Well, if you've got some sort of nuclear device in there, Nuclear power device, yeah, you definitely would want to do that. Or look at an F 16 and there's that gold tint because the pilot sits in that big canopy bubble on top of the fuselage of the aircraft. Well, if what they do when they make those canopies, which are incredibly expensive, and but they have to do it that way because If they didn't put gold into the canopy of the F-16, these pilots would all be irradiated into cancers, just lickety-split, no time at all. So by they put a very fine gold talcum, if you will, into the mix when they're making the canopies, and that's what gives it the golden tint, because it's literally gold in the canopy, which is saving the pilots from being you know, irradiated with all this radiation. Uh, The Anunnaki are using gold for the exact same reason. And that's how they're going to uh, restore their atmosphere so they don't get irradiated. And when they come, that's what they're going to want. And they're going to take... Uh, they're coming for two things in particular. They're going to come for the gold for their atmosphere, but they're also going to come for women for slave breeding programs. Because, yeah, you can make a slave in a test tube, but the most capable beings are the ones that are carried to term in a mother's womb. And uh, what they're going to do is take women, and these women are going to be used as breeders they will be, you know, literally uh, made to, you know, they'll be inseminated with these children, they'll bring them to term, and then once they're finished with them and they have what they want, then these women will be returned, and the children that they have carried to term will then be used uh, to replace a slave population.
1: Now, this has happened before, hasn't it, with the Uh, The Anakim or the the Nephilim, the, the giants that are talked about in the Bible and other ancient texts and supposedly people nowadays find their bones and when they find them they immediately get taken to the Smithsonian and put away somewhere and we never hear about it again
0: yeah, yeah, I mean there's an awful lot of cover up on this stuff and yeah, they do find them they find proof of this but we're a slave species All right, humanity is a slave species. We were bred as slaves, and you know, I really found that to be. I mean, there there are a lot of folks that go, "Oh, balderdash!" You know, that's nonsense. But I find it to be quite compelling because I myself have had gold fever. Matter of fact, years ago I wrote a short story called Gold Fever. you can still get it on Amazon. And this was back when I was in college, and I can tell you, gold fever is unlike anything else. A, a good way to put it is you're sitting there panning for gold in a river, and a Hollywood starlet comes up, you know, carrying a silver tray with champagne and chocolate-covered strawberries, and she's completely naked and just absolutely amazing to look at and says, Let's party, honey. And you look up and go, I got another hour of panning I could do. I'll take a rain check on that. <laughs> okay. That, my friend, is the power of gold fever. It, it's, it's amazing, you know, and there are other substances that you can mine that are worth ever so much more than gold, but gold Oh, Ooh, yeah, we see that, you know, we see that sparkly, and it's like, whoa, yeah, that's, the, it just blows every other instinct out of the water, and that would make, that makes sense if we were actually created as a slave species, because, that's what you want. You know, the slaves, oh, gold! And then they would just work like fiends and just drive themselves, you know, without rest until they could mine this stuff. And, yeah, I definitely believe we're a slave species. We were created to mine gold. And we are a a uh, bioengineered synthesis of Anunnaki genes and... Hominid dream genes, our hominid ancestors, which I think has given us some interesting attributes. From the Anunnaki side, uh, we have this let's go build stuff. You know, the Anunnakis are amazing builders, no question about it. And we follow in that same line. We're just, you know, let's go out and build stuff. And we're inventive. and We create stuff. But we're also like the Anunnaki. We're warlike, egotistical. You read the Lost Book of Enki, which is, once you get used to it, once you get into it, it's a little off-putting at first. But once you get into it, then all of a sudden it, it flows and you, ooh, it starts clicking. And... What I can say is the Lost Book of Enki is like Game of Thrones with extraterrestrials, horny, very horny extraterrestrials and spaceships. And we have that aspect of us as very much Anunnaki. But I think what we inherit from our hominid ancestors, and if we look at ancient Uh, indigenous cultures like the Hopi, the Aborigine. We see more of that spiritual connection to Gaia, the earth, uh, the seeking of harmony within ourselves and with all that is around us. And we inherit that from them. We, so we have both sides and when we become very spiritual, we are able to, uh, communicate telepathically. And here is where I think humanity is somewhat threatening, if you will, to some species because there are other species and they have telepathic capability, but it's limited pretty much to line of sight within a a solar system, if you will. They, they can't go great distances with it. Whereas our ability that we inherited from our hominid ancestors, our early aboriginal ancestors, we're able to telepathically connect with other species on the other side of the galaxy. That's powerful. That is really powerful. And and for some other races who are wanting to manipulate and control us for their own benefit... It's downright worrisome and intimidating.
1: Are you talking about the the reptilian species that you hear so much about in the UFO community?
0: We're talking of, there are a number of species that are involved with us, the majority of which are more on the positive side. But then we have the ones that are exploiting us and... You know, and then within a species, think about our our planet. You know, if you said, look at what Europeans did with out there and with building their empires, and they would just go in and you know the colonialization of the world, which was. really just awful just walk in and do what you want to do with people and take whatever they had and these were peaceful people that got along with their neighbors so would you say that because of what the Dutch and the British and the Portuguese and the Spanish were doing that all of humanity uh, is a bunch of colonialists by nature no Uh, so before we would accuse an entire species of something like that, I I think we need to be open to, well, they could be very, you know, they could be a lot like us in that respect. And you might have splinter groups in their species who disagree with certain tactics that are being employed. But, I mean, overall, I think that the vast majority of species – And this is uh, Edgar Mitchell uh, has uh, free.org. He started that. And I would really invite people to go look at that because they're doing very, very good analytical research on this. I've interviewed several of them. And they're finding the vast majority of people who are contactees are reporting very positive experiences. And they're reporting that the Ts are really interested in our spiritual evolution because we're at a fork in the road, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, back after I did surviving the Planet X, uh, or excuse me, Planet X forecast in 2012 survival guide, and. Uh, We got that out, the first edition, in 2007. And after that, I was kind of like, what am I going to do next? And one of the things I was fascinated was I was reading up on Nobel laureates and how so many of them just got to a point with science where they couldn't get any more answers to their questions. And so they started going to the metaphysical side of things. And I figured, well, all right, let's, you know, if they're doing it, why not me? And we began a study where we were working with uh, very talented and gifted psychics. And these, uh, the ones that were the most talented, the most gifted, uh, were typically women in their 40s who were married in very loving marriages where their husbands were supportive of their gifts. And that... Doesn't happen all that often. More is the rule is you have what I call spoiler spouses. And, you know, these are people that just go into total freak out mode. Don't do this. If you do this anymore, I'm going to divorce you. You know, they're the ones always leaning on the nuke button. And, uh but these gals, you know, they have family. They have children, loving, supportive husband. And they could really pursue their talent. Um, And we worked with several of them. The reason why we did several was because we would take them into a burnout phase. And that was because we were looking forward in time to what would happen during the Planet X flyby. And they were seeing things. I mean... We had, we were a three-person research team. I was the one conducting the interview. The two other members were with me with muted microphones who were communicating to me through instant message. And one was giving me cross-reference questions, like an attorney that you would, you would expect from an attorney in cross-examination. And then the other one was feeding me questions, uh, that were regarding matters of science. And it was a very effective thing. It worked out really well, and we did have ways of vetting each of the sources. Uh, we were working with different guides, or different talented psychics, and they would bring in incarnated, unincarnated, and extraterrestrial entities. Incarnated were uh, uh, it's spirits who had been in human form at one time, uh, unincarnated were spirits that had never been in human form, and then obviously extraterrestrial. Now, we couldn't, with the extraterrestrials, we didn't have a way of uh, vetting them, but with the unincarnated and incarnated spirits, we had a very clear way to do it because they're able to see the world and they can see things that are happening on the surface, with weather in particular. In terms of asking about earthquakes, anything below the ground, you now to them, ground is ground, they really couldn't talk to that. But what we would do is we'd say, alright, well, and this was usually the last question, and we'd say, give us a weather event, no less than six months out, a major weather event, that we'll know that you're actually, you know, capable of doing what you're doing. And they would give us a weather event, and they would say, well, you're going to have a bunch of hurricanes coming late in the season grouped together, and things like that happened. Uh, All of them, all of the weather predictions that were six months, six to 12 months out, all of them, boom, dead on. But the one that uh, really impressed me the most was uh, one entity that said, you are going to have a cyclone in the Pacific, that is going to head towards uh, Baja, Mexico, then it's going to change course and head directly for San Diego, but it will either dissipate at sea or uh, cross land as a high wind. Well, that event happened exactly as that entity said, it was a typhoon, came in, deviated from Baja, was going straight towards uh, San Diego, and then probably about 200 miles out to sea, it fell apart, and that was it, it dissipated. And so these were the kind of things that we'd have. And the interesting thing about the ETs that we were in contact with Uh, was that there was a consistent thread amongst them. They they were always talking about the same issue. With the incarnated and unincarnated spirits, it was different. Um, Unincarnated spirits were pretty much what I would call strategic uh, thinkers and how they talked about things, whereas the uh, incarnated were more boots-on-the-ground kind of conversations. And the and,
1: and by unincarnate versus incarnated you mean some of them were a- actually existing out there in physical bodies and some are bodiless do i have that right
0: well no if they had been incarnated they had been they had been at one time in their existence uh, they walked the planet as a human being
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, this really goes to reincarnation And so, which is the natural order of things. And I know there are people that say reincarnation doesn't exist. Well, the majority of human beings on the planet believe that it does. It's just the very vocal minority that shouts it down. Uh, I, for one, believe in reincarnation, especially after, you know, what I had learned through this period of research, which we conducted for 18 months. So incarnated with someone who had walked the earth as a human at some time. Whereas if they were unincarnated, they had never incarnated in human form, maybe in some other species, but not in others. And uh, the unincarnated ones uh, really had uh, more, what I would very broad level view of things, kind of like, you know, think about like the general on the hill that sees the battle from afar, where the ones who are incarnated You know they had more practical boots on the ground experience and could uh those conversations were very fruitful in terms of the information that they would share and but with the ets the funny thing was didn't matter who uh, they would always you know every dialogue whether and we had this was a consistent pattern with the different psychics who none of the psychics we used knew each other. They didn't, they didn't even know the others existed. We kept that part of this, this study that was a blind firewall. And because these women uh, were from different parts of the U S and Canada. You know, they had no idea. They were not professionals. They were not working at it professionally. We tended to steer away from professionals. And interestingly enough, you know, they started popping up on, you know, when we needed them, it was like the other side was bringing them to us. And um, but with the ETs, it was always came down to, look, you guys are at a crucial point in your life evolution spiritual evolution if you choose wisely you're going to become you're going to gain your freedom as a species you choose unwisely you are going to become rigidly and excuse me rigidly enslaved for countless generations to come and you are not going to be freed until there's really nothing left of you in your world that's worth exploiting. And then you'll be like us because we made a bad choice and we wound up paying for it. And we don't want to see you go through and make the same mistake we did. And which is really, if you look at what the Hopi Prophecy Rock is telling us, that's exactly the message of the Hopi Prophecy Rock, that we're at this pivotal pivotal point where either we take the high road and evolve and we have a wonderful world or we keep going the way we're going and it's not going to be very pleasant and sure not going to work out too well for us and that was what the ets were always saying and uh, one of the one of the, the uh, towards the end of this study, I was always kind of curious, and there was one question I wanted to ask them. And I finally got around to asking this one. It was a very polite, E.T. And, uh, and you don't talk to them in any kind of, did you eat mangoes? You, know, you don't do stupid stuff. You know, you talk to them just like I'm talking to you. That's it. That's how you talk to them. And the entities as well. And so we were wrapping up the conversation, and I said, you know, i got one last question. Diana asked this question. Sure, go ahead. You're on the other side of the galaxy. Odds are we'll never see each other. Odds are you'll never even see our planet, or we'll show up from our planet on your planet. So, what's in it for you? Why are you so interested in what's happening to us here on Earth? Why do you care? Well, the answer I got to that really floored me. The answer was, Earth has two billion native souls. There are two billion. 2 billion souls that are perpetually reincarnating on our planet. And they said, but you got 7 billion souls on the planet right now. And that's because the other 5 billion have come from other planets to incarnate at this time to help your species through this evolutionary period. And the reason why we're interested is you've got our ancestors. So, of course, we want to follow up with you and see what things are going. And we want you to take that good step forward. Don't squander this wonderful opportunity. So uh, that was, for me, that was just a jaw-dropping explanation, but it sure did make sense. So here we are. 7 billion and growing. And where are these, all of these souls coming from? They're coming from all over the galaxy as part of the cosmic plan. And yeah, there's going to be a massive amount of death and dying during the coming tribulation. But with 7 billion people, there's going to be too many of them for the elites to re-enslave all that easily. If they can whittle us down to... A quarter of a billion or less, that's what they really want. That's the reason why there is so much cover-up and manipulation on this topic and suppression. is because they want as many people to die as possible because the numbers are more manageable. Because once we go into the tribulation, all the shackles of slavery are going to be cast off.
1: The disaster is going to
0: take all of their control mechanisms, everything they do to control us, manipulate us, keep us fighting against each other, divided and and depressed and all of this stuff that they do to make us unhappy so they can control us and divide. All of their control mechanisms are going to be shattered.
1: Are you referring to the Illuminati?
0: Yeah. You're talking about the people who are running the world, the 1% of the 1%. I mean, we have a slave planet, for gosh sakes. When you have less than a 1,000 people that own 90% of the world, that's a slave planet. I don't care what you call it. That's a slave planet. And so they know what's coming. They've been preparing for this for a very, very long time. And their whole emphasis is on regaining re-enslaving the species because we are, for them, we're necessary to their existence and what they want to do. Um, and there are also for dark forces, uh, we're, if we evolve spiritually as a species, they're not going to be able to exploit us as they do now and feed off of us. So we do head for that Star Trek future. That's what the vast majority of races in our galaxy want for us, is that we do have a Star Trek future, that we do embrace them as friends, that we don't show up like in the movie Avatar where we're, You know, we're colonializing again, colonization. And in Avatar, it's just terrible what we're doing. We're the bad guys. I think that was a brilliant aspect of that. And I look forward to hopefully we can see the rest of that series before the guacamole hits the fan. But
1: is the the Illuminati working with are they working with Satan or maybe a negative alien group?
0: All of the above. I mean, you have cabals and layers within layers within layers within layers. And it's really a matter of humanity as a, if you think of humanity as a body, it is infected with a wide-ranging host of parasites. And you know, the parasites are fighting amongst themselves to you know, get more of what they want, and like parasites, they absolutely are indifferent to what they're doing. You know, for them, it's, well, you know, there's always another sucker born every minute. You know, They never, never estimate that their food source is ever going to go away, but You know, for the elites now, and I don't care what you call them, Illuminati, um, it's these are the folks there. I, you could just say they're the puppet masters, they're the ones pulling the strings from behind the curtains. And the last thing they want is for humanity to achieve what is rightfully. What, what Creator wants for humanity. All of these races in our, our galaxy, the vast majority of them, they want to see us have a Star Trek future. They want to see us evolve spiritually and do wonderful things and become achieve our potential. And so do these other races. And that is a big reason why they're involved. So there's a huge tussle that's going on. I see that, and I see what's at stake, and it is the evolution of our species. That's what's really at stake. And if those who are the parasites of our species do not want to see us evolve, because the minute we do, we're beyond their reach, we're beyond their grasp. And they're going to have to either find some other food source or die.
1: Could the Vatican be involved on some level? I always seem to hear them either making new announcements about aliens or building telescopes such as the the Lucifer Observatory which from my understanding may or may not actually exist.
0: Well, you're talking are you talking about the observatory in Arizona?
1: Uh, you know what? I don't even remember uh, where that yeah, they have right, an
0: observatory yeah. in, in uh, Mount Hamilton out in southeast Arizona and it's actually, um, there are a lot of folks that go how did they manage to shoehorn their way into a publicly funded institution? But they did and uh, Mount Hamilton is, people don't know this but there's really not that many ideal areas on the globe for viewing the skies. Mount Hamilton is one of them that is really an optimal place for viewing the sky. And particularly with regards to the coming flyby of the Planet X system through the core of our system because that observatory is going to have the longest uninterrupted viewing sky of the event. And that's important.
1: Marshall, is there... uh, One thing that I've been thinking about doing personally is I've been thinking about buying one of these telescopes. If I was to buy a telescope, uh, would it assist me in seeing any of these celestial events? And if so, is there a particular brand or type that you might recommend?
0: Well... I don't know that I would say you get a telescope because we're going to have a point in time where the viewing skies are just not going to be there. I would say that you could get yourself a, uh, a good set of binoculars, uh, like big pair of celestrons. And you can get these on Amazon, Amazon. Um, for a few hundred dollars, and you're going to be able to you know, put them on a tripod and see things while they're going to happen. You're going to be able to get a closer view of it. But once things really start to pop, we're going to have a lot of volcanism. You know, right now, the big story is what's happening in Yellowstone. All these earthquake swarms that are happening, and, which is uh, an unsettling trend for many because it tends to indicate that you have magma movement. And once this tribulation starts, we're going to have massive earthquakes. You know, right now there's a huge uh, supervolcano off of Naples, Italy. And this is the one that uh, Mount Vesuvius is part of that system. And it's on a danger list. So all of a sudden, let's say we have three or four super volcanoes, Krakatoa, big ones like that. I mean, these things start popping off. Your telescope's absolutely worthless, absolutely worthless. But on the other hand, if you have a good, tele, you know, a good huge pair of binoculars, all right, then you have something that you can use for defense of your community because now you know you can see it like uh the you can the one I like is uh i have a personally i have a celestron uh skymaster it's fifteen by seventy and you can get those online for 179 bucks. Um there's other ones that are even more expensive or less. Uh the Skymaster, uh 20 by 80, you can get those uh, for about $125. Now, um I think that is really practical because it's wonderful for viewing the skies. And it's you see it, you aim at it, there you go. And the nice thing about it is uh, when you're not using that for observing the skies, it's a great way to be seeing what's happening in the far distance around your survival community. It's good for surveillance. So I'd give you bang for the buck there.
1: Okay, awesome. And uh, another topic that you brought up was the tribulation as well as a lot of talk about uh, things going on with alien groups and stuff like that. My question is, perhaps you've heard information about this, but I've heard from a lot of different sources on YouTube mostly. That's where I do a lot of my research. But apparently a lot of people believe that there's going to be a false disclosure or some sort of alien deception in the future where one alien group might come forward and actually pretend to be our creators might pretend to be the Anunnaki. Uh, Do you foresee something like that possibly happening?
0: Yeah, it could happen. I mean, I see that, you know, we're going to have to be really, really smart and discerning in how we look at things. And I think people are starting to do that. You know, we're starting to look at the mainstream media with disgust and it was interesting. The mainstream media is the one that invented the word fake, the term fake news. And guess what? Boom, Flipped right back on them, blew back into their face because their credibility is so heavily challenged. And whether you're, you know, regardless of what you feel about Donald Trump, look at what's just happened recently with CNN. And, the bias, the obvious bias in their reporting, you know, and all they're doing is trumping trumping it up with this Russian angle because their audience tunes in for that and they're selling advertising, you know, they, so that they want the money. And, yeah, I mean, there's larger media outlets, but it's that visibility and it's really sad things. So i think rather than going you know who can we trust who can we trust who can we trust my philosophy has always been the only truth that matters is the truth that resonates within you because you and you alone put it there nobody else and that's the only thing you believe believe yourself and don't get taken in by all of this because there's a lot of self serving interests out there. A lot of manipulation. Now, <clears throat> I hear the question all the time from people, you know, when am I going to see Nibiru with my own two eyes? When am I going to see it with my own two eyes? And to me, it's really a death question because When people are seeing it with their own two eyes, they're standing out in the street and they're looking at it with friends and family and neighbor. Now they're going, hey, you you ever seen anything like that? No, let's let's go in and watch CNN, see what they say. And all of these fake news channels are going to say the same thing. They're going to say it's just an interesting light show. Don't worry about it. It'll pass overhead. It's not going to hit us don't worry about it. Well, that's absolutely true. It will pass overhead and it will not hit us. but it is going to wreak havoc on our planet and it's going to interact with the Sun and we're going to have solar storms and impact events and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and all kinds of nasty things going on. But initially when everybody's seeing it, those you know were that to me, is the last window of opportunity to begin preparing. When I wrote my book Surviving the Planet X Tribulation, I looked at it and I said, okay, is there a period of time that I target this book for? And that's what, this is the period of time that I am thinking about. Because I know this is going to happen. That there will come this moment when everybody sees it, and they're going to run into the house and they're going to go let's see what the talking heads are saying and they're not going to ask the questions of themselves because what they're really going to want to hear think about propaganda and disinformation is what makes it work is it's a participatory process it's what people want to hear if they want to hear the lies that's what they want to hear and if you give it to them, then they're, you know, then they just say, well, I, I don't have to be responsible for thinking for myself anymore. I've been duly lied to, and I feel ever so much better about it. And that's what we're going to see happen. They're going to tell people, don't worry, it's just an interesting light show. They're going to minimize it. I'm already seeing where there's all of this posturing that they're getting ready to deal with the questions of, well, why didn't you see it coming? And all of a sudden now we're having these discoveries of objects in the Kuiper Belt. And now we have the planet nine. We have a planet ten. And we have new theories that all stars are born as twins. And all of this is starting to pop up out of nowhere. I mean, I can remember talking about this very stuff and being mocked and ridiculed fiercely by folks in the you know pseudo astronomy these amateur astronomers that proclaim that they really know what they're talking about, and it's like I never understood that because all you have to do to become uh, an amateur astronomer. Is buy a telescope at Costco, Costco, and then, and, and they have it framed. So you take your Costco receipt and you have it framed, and under there you can put a brass plaque. I are amateur astronomer. Okay? <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I'm serious. And these people just think, you know, they, they, they just talk with the authenticity of gods. Um, but I find that a lot with science. To me, scientists are people who say I'm the only one who has a right to be wrong because you're too stupid to figure it out for yourself. And unfortunately, that's what we see most often, this uh, egotism in science. But there's a lot of misleading. I see a lot of posturing. They're getting ready so that they can go on and say, well, you know, yeah, we've been looking for this and we've been looking for that. And they're going to say, why didn't you find it? And what are they going to do? They're going to pull out the same lame excuse they did in 2013 with the uh, with the meteor meteorite. And they're going to say, came out of the sun. We don't look that way. It worked in 2013. You know, old tricks are the best tricks. So they'll, that's what they'll do. That's how they'll dismiss it. But the bottom line is 80-90% of the people want to hear the lies. And in Two Suns in the Sky, Who Lives, Who Dies, I explain in very, very close detail exactly why that works just that way. Who is going to want to believe the lie and why they're going to want to believe the lie. There's a lot there to go into, and so uh, again, your listeners can just go to twosunsinthesky.com dot com, and they can watch. It's a three part series, and yeah, now, they can digest it a little bit at a time.
1: Is is the planetary body, you know, Nemesis, whatever we're calling it, is it going to get close enough that it it appears as the same size as our sun?
0: That's hard to say. Um, Interestingly enough, Ed Dames says that uh, when we see it in the sky in November of this year, Planet X, or what he's calling Planet X, will be the size of the moon. And what folks need to understand is that we're talking about what's called a mini-constellation. You have a brown dwarf with planets and moons in orbit around it. And they're not in this nice racetrack pattern like we have in our system. It's a furball, you know, all different angles and different, different orbits. It's just weird. It kind of reminds you of, you know, the old movies that you saw in college, you know, about atoms. And here's these elements in the atom, you know, these parts of the atom that are in orbit around it. And everything's just helter-skelter, but it seems to work. And... The um, As as this thing comes in, you're going to have leading elements that are going to be visible first. And then the other elements are going to fall behind. So it could very well be that we're seeing the outermost planet, Biru, first. But it could be a year before uh, Nemesis actually is reaches its parapet point of perihelion where it's nearest to the sun which and you know it starts from our field of view it starts coming in front of the sun and going over our high over our heads so there's it's very difficult to predict exactly what we're going to see when we're going to see it because we're going through a long process and the people that can give you the exact precise answers to the question are the ones that own the assets all the big observatories and space-based stuff and they've got all the secret files and they know all of this stuff they've been tracking it and uh, they can predict with stunning accuracy what's going to happen and when for us what we have to be mindful of is there's a process that's involved and this thing is going to, you know, everybody always going, you know, win, 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 I call them, I call them the frogs. You know, they sit there and go, win, 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 win. And I have found over the years the the fastest way to make somebody sit there, took us on the ground, glue it to the floor with about 15 tubes of crazy glue, is to give them a date. And it's the strangest thing, but all you got to do is give somebody a date, and that's it. They don't prepare. They don't do anything. They just glue their butt to the floor. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> the uh, but we're gonna. It's a process of events and things that are going to happen. So we have to be ready for the initial phase of it, or we're going to have impact events and uh, solar storms, things like that.
1: Is looking in, is looking into this information dangerous I, I've read in several places that people that have looked into Nebu planet X nemesis etc they're actually being killed
0: Are you talking about professional astronomers uh,
1: not sure if they're professionals or not I, I just read that. Uh, you know, so-and-so made this discovery. They are about to show the world. Next thing you know, they die mysteriously. Well, they take
0: out people who have, uh, particularly if they're credentialed and they have strong gravitas. You know, they're the kind of people that if they say it, folks are going to listen to them. Yeah, they're going to stop that. I mean, classic example. Um when I was in, uh, when I was in high school, and uh, in the late '60s, early '70s, and back then, that was when we really started talking for the first time about us living in a binary star system, and Nemesis theory, and it was really exciting. There were a lot of people talking about it. I can remember. See, that's where I got my initial interest in us living in a binary star system. It was from my high school science teacher who was absolutely enthralled with nemesis theory. Everybody was. It was an amazing thing at the time. And that's the reason why so many folks who are in awareness today, one of the reasons why so many of the folks in awareness today And and it's really kind of sad that the coverage was clipped, but I talked to him. Yeah, I remember nemesis theory when I was in high school, grade school. I remember it, you betcha. And there was an astronomer, uh, Robert H. Harrington, and he was the chief astronomer of the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., Uh, He was one of the guys that actually helped uh, with the discovery of Charon, the moon of Jupiter, which was able to tell the astronaut to everybody that it was involved in the search for Planet X, and they thought they had found Planet X when they found Pluto because it was Neptune's perturber. But Pluto turned out to be, once they found Charon, they said wow they did the measurements on it and they said this thing's small Pluto is a planet but you know it's only 60% the size of our own moon that's pretty small so it didn't have the mass to be Neptune's perturber and the search for planet X was continuing now this astronomer this government astronomer published a brilliant white paper on planet X and the location of it and uh He actually had a special-purpose telescope constructed and sent to the uh, Birch Observatory in New Zealand, which was owned and operated by our government, for a sky survey to go out there and look for Planet X. And the, the work was done. The plates were returned to the United States. And as soon as they were returned... NASA got their hands on them and buried it, and that was the end of it. And unfortunately, though, for this astronomer, he appeared in a uh, in an interview with Zachariah Sitchin, author of the Twelfth Planet, and they both agreed on common things that this is uh, this this object is in a clockwise orbit, not a counterclockwise orbit. And it's a long period over it, 3600 years, and that's lunar years, not Gregorian calendar years. That's a very important distinction. Well, he appeared in this television documentary with Sitchin, and then he was actually pointing out and showing his calculations and where he felt Planet X was at. But he said something that I, you know, I think that was what really got him into trouble was that he said, he expressed the opinion that it was possible for there to be life on planet X. And man, you know, that was the kiss of death. And it wasn't that long after that, he he died from a very rapid onset of a cancer that is known to be used by intelligence agencies for targeted assassinations. And uh his wife firmly believes that he was assassinated he was still a fairly young man he was in his prime and so yeah I mean when you have people that have gravitas you know, I mean me I just back in the 80s I was a CNN science feature producer but I don't have a Ph.D., I'm not under government grant, so I don't have that gravitas. But if you have somebody that has gravitas, all right, like Harrington, then he definitely crossed the line, and that was it. They clipped him. They clipped him hard. And one of the things that we tracked, because going back, there were there, – there was a huge amount of discussion in the '80s about Planet X. And I'm talking New York Times, Washington Post, and so forth. There was even uh, uh, a NASA astronomer, John Anderson, who gave an interview to the Victoria Advocate. By the way, that it, once I reported on that interview, uh, the entire newspaper for that day was actually redacted, yanked out of the Google News service. They covered it up. But he said, yeah, there's out there, Planet X, we've got a perturber out there. And so there was a lot of mainstream media coverage. There was a lot of good conversation about it. But when Harrington was assassinated, that was it. It was like the whole conversation went off a cliff. Boom. Died. Just outright died, Marshall. And how
1: about how about NASA? Have they become corrupt? Are they part of this cover up?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's why everybody you know says NASA never a straight answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, uh, they don't. Uh, the guys that are running NASA and making the calls on this, they don't want to eat a bullet. They're all thinking about themselves, their careers, their retirement, their families. It's me and the hell with everybody else. And that's, that's really where it boils down to because the ones who are courageous, the ones who have the guts to stand up and, and talk about it usually do not, you know, have a good experience, unfortunately. And so, Now, when this does come around, Planet X is going to be a terrible shame for the science community. It's going to be a terrible shame. And they're going to, you know, these agencies, these institutions, and I mean, all of this stuff is controlled by the federal government. Now, just recently... You probably saw in the news about Planet Nine, Caltech, and Mike Brown, the Pluto killer.
1: Yeah, I did see some headlines about that.
0: Yeah, well, what happened was, and now there's astronomers that are coming out, and they're just shooting real big holes in it, okay? And so his his little scheme is dying on the vine. Uh But what happened was, uh this really goes back to, a discovery made by uh, the Alma Observatory in Chile. This is a huge, it's it's the biggest telescope in the world at the time. It's a big array telescope. And they observed two objects out in the Kuiper Belt that they were talking about. And the speculation was one that one object, both of them were very, very big. One was uh, like a massive rocky planets, many times, seven to ten times the size of the Earth. And the other was a potential candidate for an extremely cold brown dwarf star. Very old, very cold. And when I saw that they were raising the prospect of a brown dwarf star, that was when I knew these guys were going to seriously get hammered. I mean, really, really hammered. And that's exactly what happened. And they, uh, what they did was the attack team, they had, uh, and I document this on my site, so you can go out and read how they did it, but it, it was Washington Post. You know, this is Jeff Bezos, so that. I mean, he's total suck-up to the PTB. He's a total PTB suck-up. And if you want an axe job on something, you go to Bezos, doesn't doesn't hesitate to do it. And uh, you know there are a lot of folks that in this genre, you know their books are suppressed and you know crushed, and it's because of Amazon. Amazon uh, is, is not the best thing for free speech. And what happened was they got, uh, they needed to go out and crush these guys, both in the media and politically. Now, politically, that was undercurrents. It was going because what Alma did was they did good science. Who'd have thunk it? They published white papers, two of them. And the white papers, uh, you can download them from my site, and they were brilliant. All right. And what were they doing? They were just saying to other astronomers, hey, we spotted this stuff, guys, so why don't you turn your scopes to the sky and look along with us and if, you know, if we got a one-trick pony here, then we'll pull the papers. But let's go out and uh, solve the mystery. Let's work the puzzle. Well... Working the puzzle is the last thing the elites want, especially when they are talking about the possibility of us being in a binary star system. This is, there are two taboos. You can talk about planet X until the cows come home. But two things, if you have gravitas, you're professional, two things you do not talk about is that we're in a multiple sun system and the other is that there is intelligent life on another object in orbit around our sun, other than us. Those are two things that kiss a death, kiss a death. You are going to be in deep, serious kimchi if you cross that line. Well, they cross the line because they're raising the prospect of us being in a multiple sun system, which actually is consistent with 90% of the solar system's, in our galaxy, who'd have thunk it? So, what happens is that the elites hit them with a one-two punch. On the down low is the political pressure. Huge, huge political pressure. On the other side, they had to kill the story. They had to kill the name. And to disgrace the discovery. So what they do is they go out and they go okay we need a professional astronomer with an ego the size of a planet. Hello Mike Brown Caltech. This guy's got an ego the size of Jupiter. All right? He calls himself the the Pluto killer. Not because he discovered anything or did any science that proved that Pluto is the sixty percent the size of our moon. He's just the guy who led the charge to have Pluto demoted as a planet. So his claim claim to fame is purely a political exercise. Well, fine. So they go get him. And now the next thing they do is to got of course they got Bezos and they're going, we need to do an axe job on these guys. Out there in Chile. Oh, sure. You know, happy to, anything for the club. You know, that's it. That's old Bezos. Anything for the club. Yeah, we'll do it through Washington Post. And so they go to Washington Post and what they wanted to do was so ridiculously vulgar and venomous. They couldn't get any serious reporter on staff at the Washington Post to do it. Nobody was going to put their career on the line for that kind of vitriol. Nah. So what they did was they get this gal who, she doesn't know a lick of, she doesn't know anything about astronomy. Nothing. She's, She's, her depth on the topic is tissue thin. I'm talking one ply, not even two ply. I'm talking about that cheap industrial pink looking stuff, you know. And, what does she write about? She writes about well, where do you go in town to get the best bagel All right so she's writing this article i her name is Sarah Kaplan, but I call her Bagel babe, so you got Pluto killer and bagel babe Tag Marshall you have Jeff some Bezos. Huh? Marshall. you
1: have some awesome nicknames.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you and so. Here's bagel babe and what you read the article and it is a character assassination of the first order I mean it was it was just sick it was <sighs> reading it just was a terrible experience for me cuz it was like I couldn't you know what the things that she is quoting Mr. Pluto killer of Caltech, Brown, the man with the Nego the size of Jupiter. And he's out there slurring these people, smearing their reputations and their competence. And then she's piling on and she's not only are they getting the guys in Alma, but I know this is a Bezos propaganda thing because Bagel Babe is then starting to smear Percival Lowell and Clyde Tombaugh. Now, Percival Lowell, around the turn of the last century, founded the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. It was actually one of the first major observatories in the country. He was a wealthy Bostonian. He financed it, and he built the Lowell Observatory. And he, while he was famous for mapping the canals of Mars, that's not why he built the Lowell Observatory. He built it to find Planet X. That's what he was looking for. Percival Lowell is the father of the American astronomical communities efforts to find Planet X, Neptune's perturber. And an employee, Clyde Tombaugh of the Lowell Observatory, is the one who discovered the planet Pluto in 1930. Now these men, long gone and dead, and Bagel Babe is just smearing them and ridiculing them viciously, you know? I mean, it's like Bagel Babe and the whole propaganda schmear. You want it with locks or you want it without, you know? You could just see her slapping it on the bagels. And it was disgusting. But they did that. Now, meanwhile... What are they doing? In the background is the political pressure. And guess what happens? The observatory is forced to retract the papers. Not at the speed of science, mind you, but at the speed of politics. And, you know, so it was just a disgusting shutdown. So, What happens? Mike Brown and Bagel Babe win, plus all the other machinations going on. But they created a vacuum. And if you're going to control the narrative, you just don't kill the message maker and let it go at that. The message can resurface. You've got to replace the message with a new narrative. So then all of a sudden comes out this huge discovery that there's Planet Nine, okay? And that's how the Planet Nine comes into the story. And I mean, not literally, it, and you could tell it was something that they slapped together. I mean, I could just sit there and say, uh, well, uh you know, you got something out there we can control the negative narrative with. You got an idea, got a theory, we can do something with it. Yeah, we got this old thing. It's half cooked, half baked. It's been on the shelf for a long time. We'll just dust it off, dress it up a little bit, and we'll ship it out there. And so that was then all this hullabaloo that we see on Planet Nine. It's just a crock. It's just a total, utter crock. I mean, the work was so shoddy and defective that literally, within a few weeks after they put it out there, Italian astronomers came back and said, half of the sky, your Planet Nine is not even going to exist in half of the sky that you say it could be there as well. So, what does that show? There's no peer review process. There's no discipline, no nothing. They just, that's it. Blow it out there. All right? Now there's, and I think that, you know, for astronomers seeing this vulgar treatment of these honest, decent, hardworking guys who are trying to do good service, to do good science in Chile, I think that really got under a lot of folks' skin. And now... You're starting to see more articles come out by professional astronomers who are just blowing big holes in Planet Nine. And s- now we supposedly have a Planet Ten that's been discovered by astronomers in Arizona. So uh, this is the way it's you know this is the way it's all played out, but it's controlled the narrative.
1: Do you suppose that this applies towards? Other things too, such as free energy or anti-gravity technology?
0: There's always, I mean, there's control over all of this stuff. And there are, over the years, I've done a lot of, a lot of work on following, uh, what, what people call free energy. Alright? I call it zero-point energy. And because, There's no such a thing as a perpetual energy machine, all right? But you have zero-point energy, and there was – I followed this group, and they were in Australia. They were called Lutech. The company has been acquired by a Japanese company, and now they're selling, I don't know, window shades or something. Uh, But they got buried, but they actually developed a working – zero point energy generator and it and this was quite a few people were coming out with this about 10 years ago and they killed all of it now what is zero point energy zero point energy it's really a simple concept we know that uh, over 95 percent of everything everything is comprised of dark matter and dark energy and a few other things. Okay. That what we see in the night sky, that's about 5% of everything that there is. And so zero point energy is able to tap into dark energy and siphon it out. And That's all you're creating is like a, a siphon pump. So where does it get zero point from? Where does that expression come from? Well, if you are, uh, look at a sine wave on an oscilloscope, it's going up and down and up and down and up and down. It goes, you know, you have the positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative, up, down, plus, minus, whatever. And then, it, but there's that line that cuts right across the center and that's the zero point. That's where nothing can be measured. Well, zero point energy is about working right at that line where you don't have anything that's measurable because that is where dark energy exists. So they create uh, electrical siphoning mechanisms that work at zero point and can then extract the energy out of that. It It takes energy to get the machine working. But once it's working and the pump starts pulling, it's just going to pull continuously. And Lutech had a working generator. Period. Worked very well. And matter of fact, there was an island in the South Pacific. They installed it to replace the diesel generation system for the island because the island was just so we really don't want to pay for all this diesel fuel anymore to run our generators. they LuTech built a custom large version of their device, put it up there, and it just—it's still running to this day. If they haven't, you know, managed to remove it, which I would, probably they have. So, yeah, I've covered this stuff, these devices, this technology's out there has been for a long time, but it's sure not terribly convenient. For energy companies, especially when they can go up to the Arctic, because the Arctic <laughs> is now, because of global warming, it's going they're going to be able to drill oil in the Arctic. And yet, you ask them about global warming, they go, natural variability, we're not doing anything. And other people go, oh, okay, all right.
1: Now, but we that know, stuff's out there. We know that we're in for some major catastrophe. We know that there's some bad stuff on the horizon. Marshall, is there, are there some tips that you could give us to survive all of this? Are there certain places that we should go, certain things that we should buy, certain things that we should do in preparation?
0: Well, that's what I talk about in Two Suns in the Sky. And I give people exactly that information about what they can do to increase their capability of think their way through it, of how to do reconnaissance to find some place to to move to. I mean, you know, when people talk about it, you know, you start talking, you get these simplistic things like, well, get steel wool and a nine-volt battery to start your fires. You know, it's like whoop-de-fizz. Um The three main causes of death. One, denial. It's all nonsense. Nothing's going to happen. I don't want to hear about it. Second cause, major cause of death, procrastination. Okay, so it's going to happen, but I'm going to keep studying it and studying it and studying it. Instead of doing something constructive, instead of thinking, what can I do? I'm going to sit there and watch watch. All the YouTube videos I can with salacious titles. I mean, it's like, you go to YouTube and search on Planet X and Best. Planet X Best. You put that search string in there. And you see all of this, you know, now we got jokers out there who are selling Planet X like laundry soap. It's sickening. All right. And people are going for these salacious headlines. It's sickening because it's feeding the procrastination. People who think, as long as I'm studying it, I'm doing something constructive.
1: Unless I'm fully convinced that it's a complete impossibility, unless I go back to the point where I find it to be completely stupid like I used to think, I see no reason to give up on it. I see no reason to stop. If it offends you, I'm sorry. Maybe you should open your mind a little bit and really think about where the information that you've always believed is coming from and whether or not it can really be trusted. And if that means that I'm not going to be the popular kid in class, if that means that everybody's not going to like me, I don't care. I've said this time and time again. I'm not in this to make friends. I'm not trying to get people to like me. I'm not trying to lead a revolt or anything like that. I'm not trying to do that. Uh, You know, for example, V from the Red Court Hard Pill podcast came on the show a little while ago and and I I kind of got a little argumentative with him because he was talking about having guns and holding up somewhere and stuff like that. I just don't really care for that type of talk. I think it's dangerous. I think anytime you talk about organizing, anytime you talk about guns, I think that you are raising a big red flag and I I don't feel like I need to do that. I don't feel like I need to stockpile guns. I don't feel like I need to organize some little cult group or anything like that, I feel like the b- best weapon that you can use is, is information. Like The one thing I do like about Alex Jones is I like the name of his site. That's about it. I like the name Infowars because we really are in an info war. It's all about information. There's a lot of infotainment out there, a lot of disinfo, but information is key. If we're presenting real and accurate information then I think we're doing a good thing. I don't think that we have to stockpile guns or or fight anybody or anything like that. I mean, that's ridiculous. How could we possibly win? You're not going to... A tiny little group of people isn't going to overcome a much larger group. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. Of course it's happened. But realistically speaking... I believe that you have to use a different way of fighting. You have to use the fighting that somebody like Martin Luther King would do or Muhammad Gandhi, peaceful type of fighting, peaceful fighting that works on a psychological level so you don't have to get anybody killed. And actually that type of fighting works better in the long run because people look back People in the future look back and they see it. they see what you were willing to do. they see the sacrifices you were willing to make. Oh, what else do we have here? Have you noticed that there's a lot of talk of like faith based you hear that word faith based a lot on this program recently are we Are we morphing into a faith faith based program? <laughs> No, don't worry. We're not going to do anything like that. I, I just think it's funny that that word keeps popping up on the program. Is that some sort of odd bit of synchronicity there? A little bit of magic? Who's to say? Um, I do want to talk about gang-stalking a little bit. I might have mentioned this already, but if anybody out there feels like they're being gang-stalked, harassed, or anything like that, you can use this program. I want you to contact me. Let me know what's going on. If you, feel like you're, if you feel like you have some sort of gang stalking going on, whether you feel like it's human or you feel like there's some sort of alien activity going on, if you feel like it's technology, whatever, give me, shoot me an email. Shoot me an email at Radio at gmail.com. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to have you on this program. Don't feel like you are all alone. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't let them intimidate you and instill fear into you. That's what they want after all. Just shoot me an email at danielendofdaysradio at gmail.com. I'm not saying I'm going to be able to do anything about it. I'm not saying that. I'm not going to be able to stop it for you but I can certainly talk to you about it. Maybe provide some tips here and there. But at least maybe the fact that you're doing what they don't want you to do, which is talking, maybe that can make you feel a little bit better because you're standing up for yourself and you're fighting back. So let me help you. Help me help you. Don't you love that phrase? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't teach it to drink. Or you can buy a man a fish, but if you teach him to fish, you fed him for life. I love those sayings. And and what we really need to all do is we need to go out there and become fishers of men right we need to take this information and we need to seed it and we need to propagate it one innocent lost sheep at a time if you see a sheep out there that's wandering on its own go up go up there and grab it grab that sheep and shave off its wool do it um i have some other topics that i want to cover But I don't want to go super long. We've got another show just this Saturday. So I'm going to go ahead and save some of this stuff. But to give you an idea of the schedule, uh, this Saturday night, we're back on Saturday night finally. Thank God. It's going to be nice to do a show on a Saturday night again. We'll be talking to the legendary Wolfman Mike from the Monster Castle Paranormal Podcast. That is the guy, Wolfman Mike, is the guy behind the Flat Earth song. Flat Earth heads, you know, Flat Earth heads, you know that they lied to us. It's, it's so irritatingly catchy. I just can't get enough of it. I played it on the last show. So if you haven't heard it yet, if you haven't heard that last show, go back and listen to the Flat Earth show. Oh, somebody's calling. Somebody's calling. I'm about to get off air. Let's see here. Hello? Hello. Hey there, buddy.
2: What's going on, Daniel?
1: Not much. I haven't talked to you in a while.
2: Oh shit, I'm so busy. But listening to the show. Love your theme song. Yeah.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh Todd here, he had a little bit to do with that theme song, didn't he? Oh
2: yeah, it was so fun.
1: Br- brought to you by Todd <laughs> the Bod.
2: Hell yeah. Love that. I appreciate the uh the opportunity to do that for you, Daniel.
1: Yeah, like I was saying, I from, you almost sound a little bit like a like a modern day Ozzy Osbourne, just a little bit.
2: Yeah, I like to, um, you know, I have my own style for sure. Not everybody uh, likes it, but uh, I love it, and so. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I think all <laughs> I, I think it's great because it kind of has that retro feel, and it really matches the show. It, it kind of tells a story if you listen closely. All you people out there, if you listen closely, there's some little Easter eggs hidden in there. So, so check that out when you have the time. Listen closely to that intro.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Not to mention all your past shows. Thanks. Um, Marshall, uh, Matt Masters is just incredible, incredible um, guest to have on there. Love the show.
1: Yeah, he was fantastic. Uh, some of the stuff he's talking about. It's a little scary, but hey, this is what we're dealing with. This is the reality that we deal with when we approach topics like this.
2: He's one of the spookiest um ex you know experts on it Planet x that you can find you know his vision of the of how it's gonna come down is just spooky uh,
1: yeah for sure i I personally find it very interesting because I've always believed in a Nibiru or a Planet X ever since I read Zechariah Sitchin's books the, the 10th planet or is it the 13th planet series I don't even remember but those books are just awesome
2: the 12th planet oh
1: yeah thanks for that the 12th planet series uh, yeah, yeah there's there's like nine, 9 books in there something like that it just goes on and on and the last book or one of the last ones is actually called The End of Days and the name of the show had a little bit to do with me just loving that book so much.
2: Wow, I, I never, I didn't read that one, but I did read a, a, a few of those, maybe about three of his, and they're intense. I've got a couple still. And um, his book, Gold of the Gods, is, it's just the, the information in there, you wouldn't find it anywhere else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I really think that that whole thing is true. The whole thing with the Anunnaki, the whole thing with the mining for gold. Uh, it's in the records. Yeah. There's there's plenty of evidence for it. You can look at the same sorts of things happening in multiple continents during the same period of history. Uh, they, they were doing the same stuff, mining these minerals, mining the gold. There, there's so much evidence for it, and mines
2: that are hundreds of thousands of years old. Um, uh, the book Gold of the Gods was really cool because it it uh, went into all these. Um, numbers that were collected by Spain when it was involved in trying to overthrow, you know, take over South and Central America when there was a race to colonize um, the land down there. They were they were get, grabbing all this gold and it was just tons and tons of it. Every city they went to was more gold and they're like God, there must be a mine there must be a source somewhere and so they, they kept going inland and conquering all these tribes looking for the gold gold source. They never found it, but um, all these statues and everything was covered in gold and they were taking tons of it back to Spain and smeltering it into coin, coinage. And they kept meticulous records on how many tons they were bringing back. And uh, that story's just—it's fascinating because they never found the source of the gold. And uh, all along the natives, they were torturing the natives. Tell us where the gold is. And um, the natives all along said that it came from the gods. All that stuff was there when they got that when when the natives got there or whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. In fact, there's the old legend of El Dorado. Uh, place where there's yeah. supposedly all this tons and tons of gold and a lot of people have actually set out to find it it may or may not exist I might go look for it myself one of these days since I'm the adventurer's type oh
2: totally Utah's got some lost uh you know supposedly some people found a bunch of gold and hid it and there's like the lost Dutchman's mine supposedly that people spent their whole lives trying to find it in these mountains of Utah Nevada and um, Arizona, New Mexico.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's there's all kinds of stuff like that. There's stuff like that in Washington too. Supposedly, uh, this certain pirate ship sank, and and the gold chest washed up on the shore of one of these islands around here. It might be Whidbey Island or something like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Plus, you've got underground cities in Washington up there that they they capped off and they're still underground, supposedly, I've heard.
1: Yeah, there's that that story about the Grand Canyon where supposedly there there was a whole excavation site there and they found giant skeletons and, and tons of crazy artifacts and lots of stuff that just shouldn't have been where it was found. There's a lot of there's a history of America, there's a history that has been completely wiped over. There, it does seem that there was some kind of civilization here, and probably a civilization that was networked globally.
2: Well, giant skeletons would explain if there was a giant race, how they were able to build these incredible structures on the top of these mountains in, in part. Um, some of these these footings it looks like footings for huge machinery. Down in South America and Central America, though some of these ruins and excavations they found are giant channels where it looks like there was huge industrial operations going on hundreds of thousands of years ago.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And, uh, there's there's weird little cutouts and cutouts of rock and stuff like that, and there's actually there's there's like temples where there's machines that will it's almost like there was a machine that would raise and lower the water level, which should have been impossible for the technology they had at the time.
2: Yeah, and um, the Olmecs is another classic um, in mythology where they said that these giants came from the ocean, the red-haired giants, and um, the Olmecs are the ones that carved those giant stone heads where they find those stone heads down in the jungle that are
1: 12 feet round oh yeah those those big what's interesting about the Olmecs is that they live in South America but they actually they look like African Africans from Africa they have the same features the same dark skin the same everything if there's any evidence that people people traveled from one continent to the other that's it right there
2: well, and also it's just strange in their mythology that they had they describe red-headed giants that they that tried to kill them you, or that they had to get rid of I forget how the story goes.
1: <laughs> yeah, the those cultures seem to know quite a bit, especially the Mayans who who I guess earlier brought up. I really want to know where the Mayans got all their information Were they just taking psychedelic mushrooms all day or what.
2: Well, their, their astronomy was so advanced that their, you know, their view of the planets and the solar cycles and everything was just so advanced that that it's like, who would spend this much time in the middle of the jungle? Supposedly, you know, even if they were the rich class at the time, uh, calculating all the stars' movements and time cycles that go back thousands of years and stuff. It's just, it's just strange.
1: I'm pretty sure it was Cthulhu that wiped out the Mayans. It could have been. I think there might be a carving on one of the temples that
2: resembles Cthulhu highly. Um But, uh, you know, on the Flat Earth uh, show, Go ahead. I think Flat Earth uh, theory is pretty interesting. The more you look into it, the more anomalies there are. And... Um, and... I just, we've been misled on so many things that I have a hard time believing hardly anything they've told us nowadays. I'm like, if it can be hidden from you, they probably hid it. Um, but, uh, but I find it fascinating that you can't go to Antarctica or North, the North Pole. And, and that, uh, all these treaties were made a long time ago with all the countries of the world where none of the countries of the world get along, you know, today, yet they're all signed up in an agreement that nobody can go to Antarctica. That's pretty weird.
1: Yeah, exactly. And another thing is that there have been explorers that have gone down there, and they've, they've made all kinds of wild claims about flying right right on past the poles and seeing all sorts of undiscovered land and all sorts of stuff that shouldn't be there, and some people think that maybe they went inside of the hollow earth, but if you actually look at what they're saying, it seems like they just sort of kept flying and kept going and there there wasn't an end. They just kept going into a whole new territory. It, it seems more like that based on what they actually wrote down.
2: But well, it's very strange, though, very strange. And like he was discussing, Charles Lindbergh, you know, having all the problems with his family and the baby getting kidnapped and, being one of the ones that was kind of a proponent of that there was something going on, a hollow earth or something going on. Um, so that, you know, I keep my mind open just because some of the stuff that he talks about, they're, they're anomalies. You, you can't find it. I talked to Al about this the other day and he's telling me that he, he doesn't believe there's a flat earth because he's been up in a plane and seen the curvature of the earth. <laughs> and, uh, I told him, well, I've been up in a plane and I didn't see the earth curved when I was looking out the window or whatever.
1: Todd, if if I die, I want you to find my yeah. body. I want you to find my body, and I want you to take yeah. it to the steps of the White House and throw it on the steps of the White House, and, and then I want you to tell Donald Trump, this guy died for freedom.
2: There you go, and I'll collect a little bit of that black goo that's oozing out of your pores yeah. and uh, have it analyzed, yeah.
1: It is it is a little <laughs> scary though when you think about it because there's so many of these people that disappear. There's William Cooper, Phil oh, Schneider, yeah. Max yeah. Spears, Carla Turner. All of these people that have been looking into flat or not flat Earth, but Planet X. I I, I, I don't think they've killed any flat Earthers yet.
2: <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, it might be um, the Wolfman with his flat Earth denial song. Yeah, they're... looking at the flat Earthers. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding.
1: They're going to take um, him out love, that stupid song.
2: <laughs> I love that Flat Earth song, though, especially the acoustic version. Well, he's the coming on. version.
1: Yeah, he's coming on Saturday night, and he's going to sing the acoustic version. I already talked to him about it. He's going to bring his guitar. It's on.
2: Oh, nice. Nice. Maybe we can get Al to uh, call in and play his guitar, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, we can all play oh, together.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can sing. We'll Skype. No.
1: <laughs> but hey Todd, what do you think about what do you think about all these people on YouTube that are just kind of making goofy videos about ghosts and giants and sea serpents and stuff like that, and then when you click on the video, you find that it's not even anything close and it's just some made up bullcrap. What do you think of that?
2: I think it's pretty sad and I I really spend most of my time looking into what what is you know, semi-provable, as close to the proof as you can get in this field. And I think it's sad when people muddy the waters with all that uh, garbage and um, and that it, that it hurts the cause to try to find the truth. And uh, there's a lot of strange truth that would help people if they woke up to it. And it just muddies the waters and discredits people that are the whole field, kind of. So I think it's part government you know, probably involved in most of it. They probably put out most of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I don't doubt that at all. I don't doubt that at all. And I think one of the problems is it seems like the cost of living is going up more and more and instead where a person was able to afford like a three-bedroom house, two cars, three kids, and a dog, instead of being able to afford that, now all they can afford is a little apartment or something and everybody has to supplement their income nowadays.
2: Yes, yeah, slowly but surely. And I'll tell you what's part of the cause of this is our tax dollars are going to police the whole world and we've built this gigantic military industrial space prison system, right? And um, all our tax dollars are going to sustain this monstrosity and so that's why there's less and less money um, to go around. Because they do their sleight of hand with the Federal Reserve System where they suck in a little bit of the money, let a little money out, give it to who they want and their friends and then, you know, close it off for this part of the economy. <laughs> God, over a, sl- a slow period of time they've let it, they've made it evaporate so that, like you said, two people have to, God, the whole house has to work if you have older teenagers now. Um, it's horrible.
1: Yeah, they're exactly. They're
2: squeezing us out. They're just squeezing all the what 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 it is is we have this great industrial nation where they they it was free and it created all this fantastic wealth and all this prosperity and they put a cap on all that. And then they started regulating all of it and controlling the economy in the system. They don't let anybody just come out with whatever they want that would improve the world unless they can get in front of it and make the money off it. You know what I mean, Daniel? They're in yeah. the monopolies. And-
1: yeah. In fact, Todd, let me ask you a question. Uh, Donald Trump said he was going to fix a lot of this stuff. Uh, what do you think? You know, honestly, how do you feel about how he's done so far?
2: I think that it's, you know, God, I'm, I'm suspicious. I told you, even though I'm with Trump, I'm suspicious of everybody, suspicious of him coming out the gate. But he was the only one voicing what needed to be said and shaking this thing up. And so I, I think, God, he's surrounded by the deep state, these people that have been in there for decades that are in the intelligence establishment. They run all the news. They run the press. They, um, and and they're playing, playing it. They're not going to let him come in and just change things. But he's done a lot of positive things, like getting us out of the, the climate agreement, which was going to give $600 trillion to these guys out of the United States pocket over the next decade. I mean, that's saved us, Daniel, to a degree. They literally have, they've turned us into a service economy to where all the jobs are fast food for the kids, right?
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's horrible.
1: And they do a they horrible job at it, too.
2: God, yeah, and then they don't make enough money for it to be worth doing a good job. So, yeah, it's this vicious downward spiral.
1: Yeah, I, hopefully things will change Uh by all accounts it looks like they're not gonna change, but hopefully they will. Or we might well, have to move. I think move a lot polling. of
2: people are waking up and they are resisting as best they can. But I think that the system itself knows that. And they may maybe you know, through Alex Jones be making an effort to siphon all the community over there that would try to save the world, right? So you can control it a little bit run it, know who's in it. If they've got AI systems tapped into all of our areas of our society, then they're already per- playing us like a video game to a certain degree, Daniel.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about that the other day, the whole Alex Jones thing, where you know you get into the Infowars stuff, you know, you might might get some kind of hint that there could be some kind of conspiracy going on, so you get into the Alex Jones stuff, and and then you hear about him sneaking into Bohemian Grove which which should literally be impossible considering that you know considering what it is and how well it should be guarded and and the fact that he was able to just release this footage and he claims that he himself was personally there it's it's really bizarre because you could be somebody that's into this conspiracy stuff then you get into Jones you sign up for infowars you become part of his team so to speak and now his whole organization it's it's morphed one of my past guests brought this up but it's morphed into a right-wing political organization it's it's almost like everything came full circle you start off as you know believing in conspiracies and you go off off the edge and then he brings you right back into the Republican party
2: yeah yeah and um yeah and that's how disinformation works and Believe me, these guys got a lot of practice because over in Europe and all those countries, they already have all these parties and these groups and these right-wing and left-wing groups that counter each other. and They've been practicing this shit for a long time and so they could easily... This could all be a a Psy operation, even Jones. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. His popularity is the first thing that makes you go, huh he's on with Megan Kelly he's on uh, Hillary Clinton saying his name he's
1: <laughs> yeah exactly he's now That's he's disgusting. now Yeah he's a mainstream he's a mainstream guy now and now he you know whether it's his handlers that are making him do it or whether it's just him and he wants to make more money now he just he really cares what people think he wants to maintain the perception of being like this right-wing Republican guy that's for the Constitution and for American freedom Bible. and stuff like that. Yeah, and see, I'm not I'm not like that. I'm into the far-out shit. I like the real French stuff. I like the, I like me some David Icke and stuff like that. I like yeah. to go way off the deep end. Give me some William Cooper, that sort of stuff, like way off the edge. I want to talk about aliens and spirits and things like that. I don't want to stay in the 3D level and be super obsessed with uh, Goldman Sachs and things like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's key it's key to understanding how our systems controlled though, the banking and the, the the um you know, the Illuminati and the council on foreign relations, all that's a real structure that sits above, you know, perched above everything. So to understand the control mechanism you do need to know that stuff. But he stops way back there. And I told you that there were books that wrote all about that back in the six late sixties, early seventies. Some of the best books already gave you all that information way back when. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Uh, That's the whole thing about it. I, I do completely agree. We need to know about the banking schemes and stuff like that. But it's like with him, the buck stops. I mean, once we get into Bohemian Grove, why aren't we looking into what the hell those people are actually doing? Why aren't we studying ceremonial magic and, and learning about the history of what these people are up to. Why doesn't Jones look into any of that stuff? Why does he stop once we, once we enter into the world of magic? Yeah. The, yeah, the possibility that there could be interdimensionals and stuff like that. It's like he just comes if from a complete halt. He
2: stops, if anything, he stops before he ever crosses into telling you how magic works.
1: Yeah, and, exactly. Um,
2: and, and so that's another red herring or whatever that you... You kind of make, take notice of because, um, you know, once you know about the conspiracy and all that, then there's the mind and the magic and what secrets are hiding there that you don't know, that you could perform on your own, you know, um, so that's valuable stuff. That's one of the reasons your show is so valuable. I hope somebody out there that's being targeted calls in and, and, or, or emails you or something, tells you your story. You know, Richard Serrett does the conspiracy show out of Canada, you know, like Zoomer Radio. It's like David uh, uh,
1: George Norries fill in host. Oh yeah, Richard Schrett, yeah, he's he's actually not that bad.
2: No, no, he's not that bad, but he he's on the milk toast thing too. Hmm. He's milk toast like George Norrie. But um but he has targeted individuals he said contacting him all the time least one or two a week. <laughs> you, you know, that's a lot of people. Um, I, I remember back in the 80s, there was a book put out by the um, by the subgenius group. You know the subgeniuses? Do you remember them? Uh, no. In the 80s? No. Oh, they, they were a weird group that, that were into the Church of Bob. <laughs> and Bob was this head that smoked a pipe, you know, like a tobacco pipe this clean-cut dude, and it was just a made-up religion called the subgeniuses. (laughs) But they put out a book in the 80s that was all the weirdest people that you could contact. It'll send you some crap back in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was filled with uh, uh, over a thousand groups, you know, the weirdest people, the conspiracy groups, the magical groups, uh, I sent away for some of these, some of these things, supposedly that they would, you know, contact you back. And one of the ones that contacted me was this person that claimed he was being electronically harassed. And this was back in the eighties, you know, he was part of the MK Ultra mind control thing and lived in Canada and helped me. And that could all be a psyop too, Daniel, some of that, because the intelligence agencies are, are, are famous for putting a smoke screen out to make it look, themselves look different. They know how to create an image and, you know, they're involved everywhere.
1: But, yeah, definitely. It's, it's it's like a form of marketing. It's controlling public perception. It's really not that hard once you have the authority to actually do it.
2: Yeah, and so you can start, you can send people out, you know, that were, I've been an Ultra victim in this and, Start a following and, and guide people a certain way with the information. And um, that's all possible. That's all a possibility, you know, in a lot of these cases. That's why that's it's good to teach people or tell people to be discerning when they're looking at this crap.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I believe that it even goes beyond that. I I believe that there's actually people that can become what are akin to – Matrix agents, meaning something has entered into them and taken control, and now that person has some kind of agenda that comes from somewhere else, and they might be the people that are involved in a lot of this gang stalking and stuff like that.